Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're in a series that uh, we have entitled Strangers in a Strange Land. And we've been in this series now for over six months. Uh, we had the uh, great privilege to have uh, Betty Shimon with us, a, a wonderful elderly woman who now uh, lives in uh, uh, Minnesota and was a longtime uh, attender of the church. And uh, the last time she was here, I had just started 1 Peter chapter 1. And she says, what are you on now? I said, 1 Peter chapter 5. We haven't gotten very far in the six months that you've been gone, Betty, but uh, we have been in this series for six months, focusing in on uh, this idea of being strangers in a strange land. And we're finishing up the last paragraph, if you will, the last couple verses of this letter. And I hope that during this time, you've been able to understand the balance between our allegiance to the one true God whom we have worshipped this morning and the calling we have to live amongst a people in our workplaces, in our homes, and those in our family who live so very different lives, who pursue different pursuits and endeavors, who find themselves uh, living so contrary to that of the ways of God. And yet we are called as a people who find our home not here, but as exiles in this land, as we are traversing this life, that we recognize our life and our home is in heaven, in glory, uh, where we will spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And yet, Peter has articulated over and over again that we still have a life to live here on earth. And that life is to be lived in all godliness and in all truth, according to the, uh, uh, the prescription of Scripture, that our engagement with this world would be an ongoing and continual advertisement about the change that Christ has made in our lives. And I hope that you have learned a little bit more as to how we as Christians are called to live differently in this world. Peter has shared this letter with the churches of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He wrote this at about A.D. 65 to 67, right about the time where persecution would be unleashed on the church. And Peter is preparing the people to suffer well and calling them to endure hardship and trouble by living lives of love and devotion to Jesus Christ. I hope during this time in 1 Peter, you and I have learned how to live greater lives of devotion and love and to do so in such a way that though the world around us can't stand the Jesus whom we serve, though the world around us may look at the Holy Scriptures with great reproach in their eyes, that they would know that there's something different about us. Peter says that we would live such good lives that even though the pagans do their own thing and pursue their own ways of life, that they would glorify God because of what they see in us. I hope that we live differently in light of what we've learned. Well, today we come to what is called the postscript, the final greetings, the P.S. to the letter. We're getting to the final remarks of an aged and faithful apostle Peter. It is here that he shares parting words to a group of people who were living in some pretty difficult days. And what a truth that is for us today. As the world uh, pursues an all-out war against Christianity, we see that Peter's words, while they are short, they are sure sweet. And what we see is the opportunity for Paul, uh, Peter to share some parting words, not only with the people of Asia Minor, but with us this morning. You see, PSs are powerful. They can frame the whole letter 
in what is left at the end. A man once was writing to a woman that he loved, and he said, there's no mountain too tall that I won't climb just to be with you. There's no ocean so deep that I won't swim it just to be by your side. There isn't any place in this world that is so hard for me to get to that I won't do all that I can to be with you. I love you so much. P.S. As long as it doesn't rain on Thursday, I should be able to see you. P.S.s can change the way you view the whole of a letter. It was said of a man named John that he had gotten a letter from his employer and said, John, you are a great employee Everything we ask of you, you do. You work well on teams. You're a joy to be around. You accomplish all that is set before you. We are glad to have you as our employee. P.S. Pick up your final check. We're laying you off. P.S.s have a way of sometimes changing what we understand about a letter. I found an article by a man from the uh, world of Harvard University, and he was encouraging his students the importance of a postscript, the importance of a PS. And in this article that he writes, he, he writes calling it the leveraging of the postscript, how to use your final words with great effectiveness. It was written from a secular point of view, and yet according to his standards of what our final PS in a letter should be, you're going to learn that this unlearned fisherman from Galilee nails it when it comes to a farewell device in a letter. Notice what he says. According to the article, it says, research shows that 80% of us, when we read a letter, will, will automatically skip down to the postscript and read it first. So his words to us as writers was to write clearly with many personal touches in the P.S., but what is it to look like? He says, don't include a whole bunch of new information about varied subjects. Stick to what you've been talking about in the letter. Don't write a long or drawn out postscript. Leave it to be just a couple sentences, three or four at the most. Take time in your postscript to encourage the reader with kind words and leave the reader glad that, you've re that they've read your letter. Call the reader to action in response to the letter. Address the reason again for the reason for your letter in a short summary and make it incredibly conversational and personal. A secular understanding of what a postscript should look like and it's as if that writer from Harvard took the letter of First Peter and built his whole premise on what a postscript should look like. Peter nails every one of them. And so with these closing words, I wanna look at three important aspects of Christianity. The issue of teamwork, the issue of theology, and the issue of tranquility. With that, let us stand for the rever in reverence of God's word as we look to this text before us, the final words of this great letter of 1 Peter. Let us look to it together. It says, By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we close out this letter, and Lord, we could spend years gleaning the truths of this letter, but we're thankful for the six months you've given us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are strangers in a strange land. And yet, Lord, as though we live 
what the world would say in a strange way, that our lives would be so attractive, that our love would be so contagious, that our standing for truth, while maybe galling to the world, they may see the conviction that we truly believe you are all that you say you are. And Lord, I pray that as we stand firm, and when the suffering comes, and Lord, when the challenges to our faith are evident, that we would stand firm in it, that we would recognize we are recipients of your grace, and that this grace is not something that we just enjoy as individuals, but we enjoy it as a congregation, as a community of believers. And so, Lord, let us share this grace with one another. Lord, allow this grace to impact our conversation. Let it impact our conduct. And let it impact the way that we reach out to the lost. That as we encounter this true grace of God, that we would be changed. So, Lord, open our hearts. Give us ears to hear your word. And, Lord, give us the strength by your Spirit's power to put these truths into action. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And amen. You may be seated. As we look at this postscript this morning under these three headings, I want to address the first one right away. And it's the issue of teamwork. Peter addresses in this passage as he closes out this great letter. He says he's written briefly to them. I think you've come to learn that when a preacher says he's only going to speak briefly, it's not all that brief. Peter has written briefly 150-some verses about the true grace of God. But before he gets there, he wants us to understand, well, one of the chief graces that God gives us is the community of believers and the fellowship of believers that we share as fellow believers. This community is a gift that God has given, and Peter stops at the end of his letter to remember those who have been so vastly important to him. He wants to stop and, and share to all those who have shown him love and affection, who have used their gifts to serve this aged apostle. Before we look at them, I want to remind you of a truth, that what Peter is sharing is not simply a principle to live by, but in all practicality, Peter believed that Christianity, as all of the New Testament writers do, that Christianity is not a solo act. You see, here in America, we got this idea that we don't need others, that we can do it all by ourselves, but Christianity, as God has seen fit, that the life in Christ is a community project, that while there are many aspects of our faith that are personal and are individual, that is, I cannot uh, have my parents uh, go in faith on my behalf, my pastor can't do it. There are parts that I have to do on my own. But we need to recognize as soon as we're brought into the family of God, we are brought into uh, the people of God. And we're brought into that expression in the local church that you're a part of today. And Peter wants us to know that we are brought into a community of believers. And that we need one another. 
to encourage one another, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to bear one another's burdens, to confess sin to one another, to serve one another, and the myriad of other one another commands that are full uh, in full view in the New Testament. We need to recognize that you and I are a part of a team, a team that is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and we are called to love on one another. And Peter takes a moment and he says, I want to share with you people who make me who I am today, that without them, I would be in trouble. People that have encouraged me, who have called me to persevere when suffering comes. And so he brings up the names of two guys and one gal. Write that in your outlines this morning. He brings up two guys and one gal. Peter begins by speaking about this man, Sylvanius, or in other translations, Silas. Now, most scholars believe that Silas was Peter's scribe. What that means is as Peter was uh, writing this, he wasn't the one that was writing these words. But he was dictating these words to his scribe, Silas. And what we know about this is very important because when we get to verse 12 through 14, we see a change in writing style. And what most scholars believe is that Peter, in these last verses, took the pen and parchment in hand and penned these final words with his own hands. This idea of having a scribe was something that uh, Paul uh, did on various occasions with the help of a scribe. And what we will see is that what we are reading here in these final words, not only are the words of Peter, but they're written with his own hands. The reason that we know this is the words that Silas uses and the way that he writes is that of a learned and educated man where the words of 12 through 14 find themselves having a little more of a more simple approach to writing. And so we have this Silas. This Silas who was a Jew by birth was also a Roman citizen. That means he was educated. That means he had all of the great privileges of, of the Roman citizenry at his disposal. Silas was a good man. Peter calls him a faithful brother. He is a man that had walked with God for some time. He was younger than Peter. He had been one of uh, the uh, uh, missionaries on Paul's journey. We know that Peter, that, sorry, that Silas had recognized what it meant to suffer well for Christ. In Acts 16, we're told that Paul and Silas are in the area of Philippi, where the letter of Philipp, uh, Philippians was written. And while they're in Philippi preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, they are taken and they are imprisoned. In Acts 16, we are told that they're thrown into the Philippian jail. And what do they do? They do what all good Christians do, and that is complain, Right? Woe is us. Why would God put us in this situation? We're doing good and, and God doesn't care and he throws us into prison. No, that's not what Silas does with Paul. They break out into song. And they sing and they praise God into the early hours of the morning. And in the night, something amazing takes place. God brings forth an earthquake. The chains fall off them. The prison doors open up. And the Philippian jailer goes crazy. Here the greatest prison break of all of Philippi takes place. And what happens? He announces the question, who's there? Is anyone left? He's ready to kill himself because he's lost all of his prisoners. And Paul and Silas yell out from the prison cell, don't do it. 
we're all still here. It is in that moment that the Philippian jailer looks to Paul and Silas and says, what must I do to be saved? Because he had heard Christians who suffered well, who praised God amidst their suffering, that the only question he wanted to know is, how do I get to know your God? Silas was a faithful brother. We know that Silas was a man whom God would use in so many ways, ways that aren't even brought up in Scripture. There are many of you who are Silas's this morning. Not much is written about you. It's written about the guy who's next to you or the one who's working, you're working side by side with, and yet you're faithfully serving. Notice he brings up another man, and that man is Mark. We know Mark because not too long ago we read his gospel, the gospel of Mark. Mark was a young boy during the days of Jesus. Many believe he was just a young little kid who, whose mom and dad were followers of this new rabbi, Jesus. Scholars tell us that, uh, that um, Mark's parents lived in Jerusalem. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples were in the upper room, scholars believe that they were in the uh, room of, uh, a room of uh, John Mark's parents on that day of Pentecost, the day that we celebrate today, this Sunday of Pentecost. And so we see that this John Mark, who at a young age had come uh, to grips with Jesus as his Savior, now is walking and living an adult life following Christ. But John Mark didn't always have it well. Even as Peter says, this is one whom I consider a son, a spiritual son in the faith, John Mark had had a pretty bad defeat. You see, when John Mark was still young, as a young adult in the faith, he went on a missionary journey with Paul. And when the going got tough, John Mark didn't suffer well. He walked away. So bad that there was a great conflict that took place between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas, who's the son of encouragement, said, I will give him a second chance. I will take him a part of it. And Paul said, I want nothing to do with it. If the guy's not ready to walk with God and to, and to be steadfast in his walk with him, then we're going to move on. And a great dispute broke out between Paul and Barnabas. But here's the great truth. Later on in John Mark's life, the Apostle Paul would say, bring Mark to me. He is of great value to me. And here Peter says, some 30 years after uh, Mark was a young little lad in, in the entourage of Jesus, Mark would be called a faithful young man, a faithful man in Christ. So here's the thing. Maybe you have a failure in your past. Maybe you have been given some great opportunities and responsibilities to serve God, and you have failed that doesn't mean you're done. It just means it's time to get back on the horse and try now to try and serve him with greater faithfulness now in the future. But then he moves on and he speaks of this gal. This woman, notice verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. We have a mysterious gal in our midst. Who in the world is Peter talking about? When I was first an elder here at the church, our elder chairman was a man named Don Hershey. And Don was a terrible typer. And we had given him the charge as the chairman to write out the elder minutes. And every time he would type out the elder minutes, it would talk about all the decisions the elder board had made. But it didn't say elder board, it said elder broad. The elder broad 
made a decision with regards to the budget. The elder broad talked about Sunday school for the summer, the elder broad. And when finally it was asked, uh, who is this elder broad? And why is she making all the decisions? She was a mysterious woman to us. If you don't understand that joke, he was misspelling elder board for broad. And she was a mysterious lady. Well, we have a mysterious lady in our text. Who is Peter talking about? This woman who is chosen. This woman who is at Babylon. Well, some scholars, especially uh, those, and it's in a minority opinion, that what Peter is talking to is he's saying, my wife who's in Babylon sends you her greetings. We know Peter was married. We know that because one of the first people that Jesus heals is the mother-in-law of Peter. We know that Jesus was a God of grace if he heals mothers and mother-in-laws, right? Don't let my mother-in-law hear that. But we know that Peter was married. But I will tell you, I am of the opinion of most conservative evangelical author, uh, scholars that would say that whom, Jesus, um, whom Peter is talking about is not a person, but a people. And that who he's talking about is not a woman who is in modern-day Iraq, Babylon, Mesopotamia, but he's speaking of a church, in fact, the church that Peter's a part of. Tradition tells us that Peter would make his final days uh, in the city of Rome. Rome would be called Babylon over and over again, not only uh, by those uh, who wrote in the scriptures, but many of the church fathers considered Rome to be the place of Babylon, the place of great defilement, of world power and authority. And what Peter is saying is, is the church, the local assembly of believers who reside in Rome, they send you their greetings. And so we have a personal greeting that is given by two guys and this church, this gal that is there. But notice that we go on and we see that there's a goal that needs to be something that we strive for. Peter says, speaking of Sylvanius or Silas, this phrase, a faithful brother, as I regard him. And I know that for many of us, we look at that and we say, well, yeah, that he's just saying nice things. I want you to understand that there's a mouthful being said here by Peter. Peter uses his first words in these closing thoughts to speak about what he has come to know about his friend Silas. He uses the word regard. And then what that means there, that word regard in the Greek spoke of a very thoughtful and deliberate assessment and evaluation of another. So Peter says, as I look at my friend, as I evaluate him, as I look to the totality of who he is, I want you to know, as I've done a careful examination of my friend, he is a faithful brother. There are two things that I see important in this. Number one, we don't talk like this anymore, and to our shame. We don't talk about people and in regards to their faithfulness. Well, tell me about Tim. Well, he's a nice guy. Well, tell me about Amanda. She's a great gal. And we're so generic and Peter says, I've evaluated my friend. I've assessed him. And in that assessment, I have seen he is faithful. What in the world does that mean? Faithful means reliable, trustworthy, dependable, loyal, thoroughly steadfast in his love for his friends. I was struck by that. Because I asked the question, 
on my notepad where I, each week I just start, in the first part of the week, just asking questions about the text. And in big letters on my notepad, I ask the question, am I a faithful brother? Who in this world would say, Tim, you are trustworthy, reliable, you are faithful, you are absolutely steadfast, you're a faithful brother. Who would look to me and say about me that without you, Tim, I would not be where I need to be in my walk with Christ? Silas was one of those guys, and my heart burned that I would be a Silas. And so my question for you is the same question I have for myself. Who would call you a faithful brother or sister? Who would call you steadfast? Who would call you a reliable and loyal friend in your service and gifts that God has given you that you have enabled your friends around you to be better followers of Jesus Christ? Are there people who would call you such a faithful friend? How faithful are you with regards to praying for your friends. You know, we say when someone has a prayer request, oh, I'll pray for you. And if you're like me, the temptation is to just leave it there. We tell a whole bunch of people we're praying when in fact we're not, and the reason why is we're unfaithful. We're unfaithful, other things become more important. How faithful are you with regards to your service in serving others? How reliable are you when you say you're going to do a ministry that you actually do it? Peter would have never said this of Silas if, if he said, Silas, I need you to go and, and share with this church or, or I need you to write this letter or to do this task and it not be done. Peter would never say he is a reliable and trustworthy friend because he did it is what made him reliable and trustworthy. How faithful are you with your time and energy? How important are people? How faithful are you when it's inconvenient? How faithful are you when it's going to cost you something? When it's going to cost you an opportunity, are you more willing to see to it that you reach out and love on a friend and serve them as you serve Christ? You see, at Village Bible Church, we strive to be a family, but not any ordinary family. I might add to our vision statement that we desire to be a family that is filled with faithful brothers and sisters. People who we can depend on, who are laughing with us when we are happy and joyful, and who mourn with those who weep. Those who are willing to endure the good and the bad in our lives to show God's faithfulness through everyday encounters with us. The church must be, hear me out, if we are going to be effective in any way, the church must be a church of faithful people. We live in a world where people manipulate us. We live in a world where people scheme, where people lie. And that must be foreign to the people of God here at Village Bible Church. Let us be a faithful people. Now notice he moves on, and just so you know, my first point is the longest by far, so I will be faithful to the clock. But he talks about a, an affectionate greeting. Notice he says in the text that this church that we now have established is in Rome sends greetings, and so does Mark. And then in verse 14 he says, greet one another with the kiss of love. 
And so here Peter twice in this closing remark speaks to this issue of greeting. And I want you to know that greeting is so very important because what greeting does is it engages in the reaching out to others as the family of God. Now you say greeting is not all that important. We do that every Sunday. We greet one another. And really, I know what some of you are thinking, greeting, that greeting time is just to allow the worship team to, to get their music set and, and to make sure their guitars are tuned up. And, and so we distract you by spending time with one another, so we're all set up here. So Kendra knows the announcements, and, and we're all set. Okay, is everybody ready? All right, now they've greeted one another enough. We've, we've wasted their time. We've got what we need done. We're all good. No, brothers and sisters, greeting one another was a huge part of the first century church. And Peter wants to make it clear that greeting must be a part of who we are as Christians today as well. Here's why. This is why I love exposition of God's word. I never thought I'd preach a sermon on greeting. But when it's in the text and it's the next verse, you do it. Here's the thing I learned about greeting. Greeting one another acknowledges the presence of others in your busy life. We are so self-absorbed here at Village Bible Church. The world revolves around us. And what greeting does is it's a reminder that there are others in this world besides ourselves. That when we're absorbed in what we're doing and the work that we've got to accomplish and, and our thinking and our concerns, what greeting reminds us is the presence of another one in our midst. And so what greeting does is greeting embraces another instead of ignores them. I want to challenge you to this morning, as I did the first service, that I know that the church is growing quickly. Last year, we grew at a rate of 21%. That's a lot of people. And I know a lot of you say, well, there's no way I'm going to know the people. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to talk to the people I know. Shame on you. Shame on you. Will you know everybody? Will everybody be your best friend? No. But one of my biggest pet peeves as a pastor here is what I see on a weekly basis, and that is the abject ignoring of people that I see. And I've challenged some of you on it. A person's two feet from you, and you stand there, and you don't even look at them. The Bible says a command is to greet one another. It's to do it. We're called to do it. I'm going to give you a rule. Someone comes into your five-foot sphere, okay? Five-feet sphere is about your arm's length. Here's your job. Shake their hand. Ask them their name. But what if I've already asked them a million times? Here's your permission. You don't know them. Ask them your name. If they get mad at you, you come talk to me. I'll go yell at them, okay? Greet them. Ask them where they're from. Ask them how they're doing. Ask them, is there anything I can do for you this morning? You say, but Tim, I, I don't know who they are. Let me, can I just tell you some, a practical truth I learned? Every one of the important relationships that I have today started at some point with a greeting. Even the greatest relationship, earthly relationship I have is my relationship with my wife. It started with a greeting. You want to hear a funny story? Ask her how that went. Okay? It all started with a greeting. When my children were born, hey, guy, 
Hey, welcome to the family. Every relationship we have started with us reaching out and saying hello. So here's the thing. You want a reason for this? Your next great friendship is being missed out when you ignore those around you. Can I add that every ministry that we're a part of, because ministry always impacts people, it doesn't, we don't just do these ministries that don't have any uh, impact on others. Every aspect of our ministry is connected to our greeting of one another. We've got to greet one another. Now, if you're uncomfortable, let me make you all the more uncomfortable. Peter says, all right, this is how you do it. You kiss one another. Last week, one of our ushers thought it'd be funny that he would apply this truth. And when I walked into the worship center, he took my hand, took me close, and he just started laying kisses all over my cheek. And I will tell you, there was nothing holy about it. <laughs> and he says, I'm just doing what the scriptures tell me to do. Now, I will tell you, is there some culture to this? Yes. I was born into a Middle Eastern home. My father's from Iraq. We understand what it means to kiss as a greeting. Some of you will see my Palestinian brother Abraham and I kiss each other on both cheeks. We're just two Middle Eastern brothers of a different mother just loving on each other. And so there is some culture to it. And yet, we see that it was commanded uh, by the Apostle Peter to be done. And there was a reason for it. The affection that was shown in a kiss showed no formality. It showed no prejudice. It showed equality. It showed intimacy. But here's the problem. What God intends for good, man many times creates situations of bad. And so you read the early church fathers on this. Man, I never thought I would study the issue of a holy kiss. And I did some research on this, and, and I was flabbergasted. Why don't we see this practice anymore? One of the reasons was Tertullian, Polycarp, and Justin Martyr, who lived 100 to 200 years after Jesus walked on this earth, they start writing about this practice of a holy kiss. And they said it had been run amok in the early church. What was happening, it was a mechanism and vehicle of lust. And so the people of God would gather together, and, and they got excited to kiss, and they would go look for the people they wanted to kiss. And the kissing went from being something that was, and I don't mean to be gross here, but it was spoken very clearly in the early church. It was to be done with a closed mouth. And so it was to be a peck, a sign of love, became debauchery in the early church. So the early church fathers said, men, you kiss men, and women, you kiss women, not to give an occasion for lust and reproach to the name of God, Tertullian says in his early writings. And then by the third century, the, at the Council of Nicaea, the church fathers gather together and they say, we need to outlaw it all together. It just doesn't need to be done. Find different ways. And so what we see when Peter says, greet one another with a holy kiss, is not per se the activity, but the affection behind it. So if we shake hands, make it heartfelt. If we hug, Make sure that it is with, done without hypocrisy. You say, well, wait a minute. You can't kiss somebody and not show affection. Let me remind you that our Savior was betrayed by a kiss. So you can fake it, and some of you do. W.E. Vines, a biblical scholar, said this. In our greetings, there should be an absence of all formality, 
and hypocrisy, free of all prejudice arising from social distinctions, from discrimination against the poor and partiality towards the rich. The greeting should flow from a heart that lets the world know that we are Christians by our love. You think we can grow in our greeting? You betcha. Let's do it. Now notice he goes to theology. And theology is an important thing. And when he speaks about the issue of theology, he says very quickly that he has exhorted and declared all of it briefly that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? All that he has talked about in these five chapters, this is the life. And the life that we have is in the grace of God. We need to understand something. We are different than all other world religions primarily because of one thing, and that is grace. No other religion, no other faith here in our world, no other man-made religion speaks on the issue of grace. And I want to remind us of this issue of grace because our theology is built on the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10. He is the God of all grace. So notice, where does this grace come from? Its source is God. Write that down. Where is the source of grace? It's God. You can't go to Walmart and look on the shelves and find grace half price. Your employer doesn't say, well, you've done a good job, so I'm going to give you an extra week of vacation and a little grace to get you by. We cannot get grace on our own. It must come from God. And God doesn't just give grace to us, the believer. But the man who is mowing his yard in Sugar Grove this morning, who hates everything about God, who despises God and his ways, is breathing in and looking deeply into and experiencing the almighty grace of God while he mows the grass. And he doesn't even know it. And it is why the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Because the very breath that he's breathing and articulating those words is a grace that God has given him. Because apart from the grace of God, you and I would be destroyed. We could never stand in the presence of God. We could never experience even an ounce of happiness if it weren't for the amazing grace of God. So notice its source, notice its significance. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He states it twice in the book of Ephesians. For by grace you are saved. You and I could never experience Jesus. You and I will never experience eternal life. You and I, without grace, would close our eyes, as Al was talking about before his prayer, and we would only see torment in a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. But God saved us. Because he's the God of all grace. And if you think, and I know some of this is elementary to many of you, and it's done so on purpose, because every once in a while in a church like ours, we need to go back to the basics and say this. If you think you are going to get to heaven or going to experience the grace of God because of something you've done, hear the words of Isaiah, our righteous deeds are but filthy rags before a holy God. And so recognize this. If you think you're going to work your way because of all the good that you do, you need to understand it is by grace you are saved. And if you have never bowed the knee to Jesus, 
and said as John Newton did, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was once blind, but now I see. If you don't rely and rest in that, you're lost in your sin. This last week I saw on Facebook one of our own people that, that said it was, it's a hammock day. And there was a picture of their bulldog uh, sitting in a hammock. And I thought about that as I was working on my sermon. And I thought, we need to have a hammock day just to rest in God's grace. Do you know that every good thing we have is that we are recipients of God's grace? God is the giver of all good things. And so all that God allows us to do, to have breath, to have life, to enjoy our family and friends, to enjoy the creation, is all a gift of God's grace. Everything we have is because of God's grace. It is totally significant in our lives. And notice Peter says it's the strength that the Christian needs to get through life. This grace is so powerful, it's so amazing, that you and I can stand firm in it. The idea here, this phrase, stand firm, is a military term. It's a command of urgency. In light of God's grace, this true grace of God, it's true. What the world is offering is false. This is true. And what, what God is giving us, he says, now you need to stand firm in it. The idea was of a soldier who is to hold a strategic position that he held even though he was under attack. And so as believers, we are to stand firm in this grace. And the idea is the world's going to throw everything against us. We just read last week and heard last week, we've got a devil who's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking who he's to devour. And what are we to do? We're to resist him standing firm in the faith. And how are we to do that? We rely on God's grace. We remember that God is the one who has saved us. We remember that God's the one who will see us through to the end. We are the one, just as we sang, that, that salvation will be brought to culmination when God raises us from the dead as he raised his own son. And we stand firm in it, even though we're under attack. God's grace is the grace that will get us through. God's grace is the grace that will allow us to suffer well. God's grace is the grace that will allow us to serve Christ here in this world and in the kingdom to come. What a source. What significance and what strength. That's why grace is amazing. Notice finally he finishes with a word about tranquility. He stops this whole letter and he says, Peace to all of you. Who are in Christ. Some of you need peace this morning. Do some of you find yourself hurting and scared, lonely, troubled? You find yourself broken and in need of peace? It has been said that to know Christ is to know peace. That is K N O W. You want to know Christ? you'll know peace. You will not have peace. No peace means you have no Christ. N-O. I hope you get that. 
amidst the devil's schemes, amidst the trouble that the world was going to bring. Remember, Peter is writing this letter to a group of people who are about to have all hell unleashed on them. In a matter of a couple of years, the Roman Empire would make it their singular goal to destroy Christianity. And their life would never be the same. And for the next 300 and some odd years, Christians would be put to death one after another because they would choose Christ over Caesar. And here Peter says, you can have peace. Peace to a hurting people, to a scared people in Asia Minor, to a troubled people. But where does this peace come from? Notice very quickly, peace comes through our salvation. Notice that he bookends this idea of grace and peace in verse, chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We need peace. We need grace. And it begins by knowing that our salvation is secure. He says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. How can we have peace? When we rely on the salvation that God gives. And notice this peace is going to allow us to submit. It's going to enable us to submit. Peter has talked over and over about submitting to earthly authorities, about submitting wives to husbands, about the church to its church leaders. Submission is all over the place. Uh, employees to employers. How do we do it? We stand at peace with where God has us. And the way that we are settled, we are tranquil in our position is to recognize that we are sinners in need of God's grace. He has given it to us and that's all we need. So whether I'm a mopper at a local McDonald's or I'm the President of the United States, I'm okay with wherever God has me because that's where God wants me. And I'm going to serve to the best of my abilities and I'm going to use that opportunity to serve the world by sharing the gospel with all who will listen. It enables us to submit, and finally, it will calm us amidst suffering. Peter has written this great book on suffering. And Peter seems to emphasize from the beginning to the end that despite the fact that his readers would be sorely tested and experience fiery trials, they, and us as well today here at VBC can experience, amidst all of the trials, amidst all of the tribulation, you and I can experience the peace of God which transcends all understanding. Because this peace is available to us. It's accessible. And as the blazing furnace of expected trials comes, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you and I, my friends, beloved, we can rest in the grace of God and we can take a hold of his peace. And if that doesn't warm your heart on a May morning, then something's wrong with you. We need God's grace to be in abundance. We need God's peace. And we don't need it just as individuals, but we need it as a church. Because we're called to be strangers in a strange land. And so let's live up to the calling he's asked us to. Let's live these holy lives that he's commanded us to live. And let's do it knowing he's going to meet us every step of the way. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and I thank you for this book. Thank you for what it's taught us. I thank you for the example of Peter. Not a perfect man by any stretch of the imagination, but one who was faithful.
And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful, just as Silas was called a faithful brother, that we would, first of all, be called faithful children of yours. And that as we are faithful to you, that in turn, Lord, we would be faithful to one another. Lord, I pray that that faithfulness would be seen in how we greet one another and how we show love to one another. Lord, I pray that that faithfulness would be a response to the grace and mercy you've shown us. And Lord, I pray that because of all that you've done for us, we can be at peace in this world of chaos. That we can entrust ourselves to a faithful God, knowing that your ways are greater than ours knowing that you have a plan that is being unveiled for us. And Lord, that we will see in the right time. Lord, humble us to wait on that plan, to wait on your timing. And let us experience during those times of strife and difficulty and times of waiting, the peace that is yours and is found in your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, send us off to a very unpeaceful world and enable us to be your hands and your feet to a dying world that we may be able to reach out and be able to share the good news of Christ. Allow us to live the holy lives that are needed to be that example. And Lord, I pray that you would receive the glory and honor for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let me share these words in closing. And after you have suffered a little while, let the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, let himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.